we've been working our way chapter by chapter in the book of Genesis, right? And tonight, what chapter are we in? 36, chapter 36, chapter 36. So please open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 36. And when you have it, you can shout out amen. amen. Now, if you don't have a hard Bible, you can always open up the Bible app on our church app. You guys know we got a Bible on our church app, right? Huh? It's for your convenience, you know, put that baby to use. Praise the Lord. But thank God. Thank God for all the, all the ways that we have, right? To read his word. Amen. We've got so many, so many ways of accessing God's word. That's awesome. Praise God. So Genesis chapter 36, okay? Now, how many of us from time to time in our own Bible study, in our own devotions, um, have skipped chapters with genealogies? Come on, be honest. Be honest. Huh? For those of you who didn't raise your hand, y'all some liars, man. <laughs> but we, we, tend, we tend to skip chapters like this, right, for whatever, whatever reason, right? Whether it might be boring or maybe we don't understand it or maybe we can't pronounce the names. Now, that's my problem, right? I have a hard time pronouncing these names, so I'm going to tell you right now. If I mess up, if I butcher some names tonight, forgive me. All right? You with me, I'm Pastor T? So forgive me if I butcher some names tonight, all right? But we sometimes wonder why a chapter like chapter 36 would be in the Bible, right? Nothing but genealogies. But how many of us know that if it's in the Bible, it's there for a reason, right? It's there for a reason. God placed it there for a reason. Right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. Amen? Amen? What does that mean? That means every book. That means every chapter of every book. Every verse of every chapter. Every word of every verse. Every letter of every word. It's all God breathed. Amen? It's all God breathed. All right. So we're going to jump into chapter 36, but I'm not going to read the whole chapter like I usually do because I know that there, you know, it's, it's a long genealogy, and I'm already going to butcher a lot of names, okay? But I am, I am going to you know, pick up on a few selected verses and kind of go over overall lesson of this chapter, okay? Is that Okay. Okay, so let's go ahead and start Genesis chapter 36, verse 1. Now, before I start reading, I downloaded an app, okay, that helps pronounce the names. So that way I don't, I don't, I don't look foolish, you know, when I'm trying to say these names. So if I say I'm wrong, we can blame the app. All right? Okay, let's go. Uh, pass the book. Okay, I'll pass the book. All right. Verse 1. This is the account of the family line of Esau. That is Edom. Esau took wives from the women of Canaan, Ada, daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Aholibama, daughter of Anah, and granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite. Also, 
Bashimath, daughter of Ishmael and sister of Nebaioth. Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau. Bashimath bore Ruel. And Aholibama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in Canaan. Esau took wives and sons and daughters and all the members of his household as well as his livestock and all his other animals and all the goods he had acquired in Canaan and moved to the land some distance from his brother Jacob. Their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The land where they were staying could not support them both because of their livestock. Verse 8. So Esau, that is Edom, settled in the hill country of Seir. This is the account of the family line of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Adah, and Ruel, the son of Esau's wife, Bashimath. The sons of Eliphaz, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatem, and Kenaz. Esau's son Eliphaz also had a concubine named Timnah, who bore him Amalek. These were grandsons of Esau's wife, Ada. The sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were grandsons of Esau's wife, Bashimath. And the sons of Esau's wife, Aholibama, daughter of Ana, and granddaughter of Zibion, whom she bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These were the chiefs among Esau's descendants. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These were the chiefs descendant from Eliphaz and Edom. They were grandsons of Ada. The sons of Esau's son, I mean, the sons of Esau's son, Ruel, chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were the chiefs descendant from Ruel in Edom. They were grandsons of Esau's wife, Bashimath. The sons of Esau's wife, Aholibama, chiefs Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These were the chiefs descendant from Esau's wife, Aholibama, daughter of Ana. These were the sons of Esau's, Esau, that is Edom, and these were their chiefs. Whew. That was a mouthful. We'll stop right there. We'll stop right there. You can clap for that. Praise the Lord. Huh? What happens now? Let's pray. Father God, we just bless you tonight. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful, Father, for what you prepared for us tonight, Lord. We ask, Heavenly Father, that as we dig into your word and we study, Lord, that you would open up our minds, open up our hearts, that you, Father, would... Teach us, Heavenly Father, what it is you want us to see, Lord. Let the seed of your word, Father, land on the fertile ground of our hearts, Lord, that we may produce the fruit, Lord God, that would bring you all the glory. We turn this time of Bible study to you, Father, giving you all the glory, Father. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How many of us know who D.L. Moody is? D.L. Moody. He's a 19th century evangelist, right? And he once said that our greatest fear in life should not be failure, but succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. Let me say that again. Our greatest fear in life 
should not be a failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. Now, how many of us are, have the fear of failing? How many of us are afraid of failing? At whatever it is that we set our minds to do, hearts to do, or whatever, right? I see a few hands going up. But I don't believe anybody here wants, wants to fail, right? I don't believe anybody here wants to experience any type of failure. But imagine what it would be like if you poured all of your energy into something throughout your life. And perhaps you were viewed by different people as being successful in that endeavor that you do, right? And you discover as you're looking back that everything that you work hard on that didn't really matter. Or imagine if you were climbing a real high mountain, okay, and you went through all the, all the, 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 the perseverance, right, all the training, all the various difficulties that you go through as you're climbing the mountain, only to find out that as you finally reached the peak of that mountain, you finally got to the very top, that that was the wrong mountain to climb. That's, that's what... What Diamuri is talking about, right? Because now you reach that peak, you're already old, and you're looking back at it, and there's nothing that you can do about it, right? So now it's wasted time, right? This is what he's talking about. It's not the fear of failure, but it's the fear of succeeding as something that doesn't really matter. So how can we be sure that that's not us? How can we be sure that we don't succeed in something that doesn't really matter? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight, right, in chapter 36 here in Genesis. Now, chapter 36, it covers the whole, the whole uh, well, the whole chapter covers Esau. You guys remember Esau, right? Jacob's brother, the man's man, wilderness guy, right? The truck driver with the gun rack in the back, remember, because he loved hunting. Huh? The Duck Dynasty, hairy guy. Esau, the man's man. Okay, this whole chapter focuses on him and on the decisions that he would make and the legacy that he left in the form of his descendants. Okay, Esau became a great nation, a great mighty nation. And here we can tell by reading the genealogies. And I only read half the chapter, right? The rest is a whole lot more. Okay. But it shows here the genealogy of his sons, his grandsons, right? How they became chiefs and how they became kings, how they became territorial rulers, okay? But the unfortunate thing that we're also going to see in this chapter is that we're going to see that Esau also is more interested in earthly greatness, okay? He's more interested in prosperity, earthly prosperity than the things of God, okay? But in order for us to understand this chapter, we're going to have to take a, a trip way back in history. Okay? So we're going to go back to chapter 12 of Genesis. Now, you don't have to open there. Okay? I just want to bring out the promises that God made to Abraham. There were three things that God had promised Abraham. Does anybody remember? Three things that God promised Abraham. He promised them land. The land of Canaan. He promised them descendants. Okay? Got everybody thinking now, huh? Father of great nations, that's a great one, okay? Pardon me? Make your name great, amen. All that encompasses, that's all together 
under these three main things. One, that he would be a great nation, right? The father of many nations. Two, that he would possess the land of Canaan, the promised land. And three, that he would be an instrument of blessing to others. He said, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to others, right? Now, those three things that, that God promised Abraham were passed down to who? Passed down to one person. Passed down. There you go, Isaac. They were passed down to his son Isaac, right? Now, from Isaac, you would presume that he would pass it down to who? Well, you would presume that he would pass it down to Esau. Because after all, it's his firstborn, right? Back in that culture, the inheritance, the promise, was always passed down to the firstborn son. Okay? So Esau should have been the one to inherit this promise. But what happens? If we fast forward now from chapter 12 to all the way to chapter 25, we see that it appears that Esau, he voluntarily gave up this privileged position. Right? So if we recap in Genesis 25, starting in verse 29, just as a reminder, he says, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He was tired. He was worn out. And he said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. When I, see, when I read that right there, I'm thinking he's probably looking at a pot of chile colorado or something, you know? He said, Give me a pot of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. And Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank. Then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now, anybody remember what the birthright entailed? The possessions, right? Everything, right? There were, there were certain privileges that the firstborn got, okay? He, he, got, he got to exercise a unique authority over the family, a spiritual authority. But not only that, he also got this, the, the double portion of the blessing, okay? So, these privileges right here were typically were supposed to go to Esau, the firstborn son, because that's how it was done back in that culture. And here he ends up giving it up to, to Jacob. Okay? So Jacob gains this birthright. Okay? And this becomes a huge deal. But notice that in, in verse 34 it says that Esau despised his birthright. Now we all know the story, right? We've been covering this story for the past couple of months, right? We all know the story. Jacob had a big play in it too. Remember? He was devious in the way that he tricked his brother Esau into giving up that birthright, took advantage of him. But yet the blame here is on Esau. Why is that? Because he sold it. And the reason why he sold it was because he had no regard for his birthright. He didn't care about it. Right? He didn't see the value in that birthright. So to him, it was nothing. So this shows right here that he, he didn't even have any, any type of clue of the significance, right, of what God had promised to fulfill through Abraham and through the descendants. So 
right here we see that this is like a first indication of Esau, the way that, that he's, he's, he's into the earthly uh, ambitions and priorities, right, over the things of God. He could care less about God's blessings. All he wanted was the possession. All he wanted was what was in front of him, okay? And so this right here, we see that he's committed to earthly ambitions, earthly priorities instead of God's blessings. But then we, then we fast forward to what we're, t what we're reading right now, Genesis 36. We see here also some more examples of Esau and what Esau chose for himself, right? And the path that he chose to take. Because we see back here in verse 1 how he takes, you know, these Canaanite women to, to be his wives, right? He says, this is the account of the family, of es the, the family line of Esau, that is Edom, Esau took wives from the women of Canaan, Ada, daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Aholibama, daughter of Ana, and granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite. Also, Bashimat, daughter of Ishmael, and sister of Nebaioth. Now, we got to understand that the Canaanites, they were, they were thoroughly pagan. They had no clue, right? They had no clue about God, let alone being devoted to God, Right? So these Canaanite women, they were, not, they, were they were not considered suitable wives for Esau. Okay? They were not considered suitable wives. Why is that? Pagans, right? But what happens when you marry a pagan? They turn your heart away from God. They turn your heart away from God, right? And it happens in every marriage for those of us who are married. It happens in every marriage, right? Let me, let me, let me clarify before I get myself in trouble, huh? Who we marry makes a tremendous impact on the trajectory of our lives. Okay? Who we marry makes a tremendous impact on the trajectory of our life. You want a good example? Look at King Solomon. King Solomon hooked up with many different women, and it affected him as well, right? So, marry, being married, it makes a tremendous uh, impact on the trajectory of our lives. So that right there is a good principle for those of you who are single and are looking to get married. Remember that. Okay? Whoever you marry is going to have a greater spiritual impact on you than almost anything else in your life. Why? Because you'll find yourself forming your perspective on things based on their perspective on things. Right? You'll find... The, the, the natural attitudes and habits of your spouse growing on you, you'll have the same thing. That's what it always happens. You know what I mean? That's why I believe that one of the best advices, you know, for single people that are looking for a godly spouse is this one thing. Are you ready for it? Single people, you ready? Huh? You're breaking out a pen, ready to write it down. You ready for it? Run as fast as you can toward Jesus. Like, that's it? Run as fast as you can toward Jesus and then look to see who's running beside you. Okay? Run as fast as you can toward Jesus and then look to see who's running beside you. Now, fellas, I'm going to talk to you single guys first. Okay? I'm not even going to point out. I don't even know if there's any single guys here. But just in case. 
Guys, run as fast as you can toward Jesus. Not toward the woman. Toward Jesus. And then look beside you. And if you see a single woman running at the same pace as you are, toward Jesus, not you. Toward Jesus. Because it's important that you have someone that puts Jesus first, right? But if you find someone that is single that has her focus on Jesus, then you wife that woman. You hear me, guys? Ladies, same thing. Run as fast as you can toward Jesus. And if you look beside you and you see a single man running towards Jesus, not you, then you spouse that dude. Amen? In other words, do not settle for someone who is truly not devoted to the Lord. Do not settle for that. Because we see here that's exactly the mistake that Esau makes. Okay? He does exactly what his grandfather Abraham told him not to do back in chapter 24. They were not to marry Canaanite women. Right? Esau was too busy satisfying his flesh. Being unequally yoked. All of his wives. Yes. 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 Right. Yes, she was. But they were all unbelievers. All of them. Right? He was unequally yoked because he married unbelievers. How many of us know that the word of God is clear about us being unequally yoked, right? It's very clear. We are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Marriage is to begin in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Marriage is to be in the Lord. It's to be founded in the Lord. It's to be lived in the Lord. And it's to be finished in the Lord. Amen? The union of marriage is not physical and sexual. It's not. It's first spiritual. Of course, the other two come afterward within the confines of marriage, right? But it's first spiritual. It's not based on lust. It's not based on flesh. And that's how Esau was. Esau was thinking differently. He was thinking in the flesh. He was acting in the flesh. So it shows us the, the condition of his heart, right? His heart was cold toward the things of God. So as we move forward into verse 6, we're going to see that he does another thing also that pretty much seals his fate. In verse 6 it says, Esau took his wives and sons and daughters and all the members of his household as well as his livestock and all his other animals and all the goods he had acquired in Canaan and moved to a land some distance from his brother Jacob. Their possessions were too great for them to remain together and the land where they were staying could not support them, both because of their livestock. So Esau, that is Edom, settled in the, hill, in the hill country of Seir. Now, you guys recall what the land of Canaan was, right? What was the land of Canaan? The land of milk and honey. The promised land, right? 
the promise that was given to Abraham. So by Esau leaving Canaan, what was he doing? He was basically cutting himself off from any type of blessing that would come to him being in the promised land. Okay? His departure made it clear that he was not part of God's chosen people. But then again, we see in verse 7 that both of them, Esau and Jacob, they had a lot of possessions, right? They couldn't dwell close together in close proximity with each other. But there, Esau didn't have to leave the promised land. He didn't have to leave Canaan. He could have moved to a different part because the land was vast. You know what I mean? But this shows right here that because he left, we see where his heart was at. He didn't want anything to do with the things of God. So the rest of this chapter, right, it traces down Esau's descendants, including all the numerous trials, I mean, uh, uh, tribal chiefs and, and, the, and the, the kings that would come from his line. And these are all mostly names that I'm not going to read because I've already butchered a, a, a lot of these names, right? But these names, the whole genealogy is to, is to show us a point that it shows us that, that, that God keeps his promises. Because Esau was blessed. He was blessed with, with, with a, he, possessions, right? A lot of earthly possessions. He was, he, was, he was blessed into a great nation. That goes to show that God keeps his promises. Because he promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. He promised Rebekah that the two children in her womb would become two great nations. Right? So even though Esau was living in sin, he was still reaping the blessings of the promise that God made to Abraham. Amen? Now this right here, to me it's encouraging. It's encouraging to see that Esau was blessed. I'm going to tell you why. Because if God can bless a faithless man, how much more can he bless those people of God, right? How many of us are holding on to God's promises? Oh, man, that sounded weak. You guys aren't holding on to God's promises? Come on. We serve a faithful God. You know what I'm saying? We serve a faithful God. Maybe your promise hasn't come yet, but it's coming, right? Hold on to that promise. Don't get discouraged. Don't let go. Hold on to that promise. Why? Because we serve a faithful God. Amen? Amen? Hallelujah. But then this, this chapter also reveals the legacy that Esau would leave in his family. It shows us that he achieved greatness, right? We see this confirmed throughout the generations, okay? The generations of Esau would grow in numbers, became a great nation. They settled in the land of Seir, which they changed to Edom, where they would become the Edomites, okay? They would be known as the Edomites. And if you, and if you have read through the Old Testament history, you'll know that the Edomites had become enemies of Israel. So if we, if we fast forward about 500 years to the time when Moses was, was um, bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt, we'll see that in the book of Numbers, in chapter 20, that Moses reaches out to the Edomites. And he asks them for permission to cruise through their land. Right? Because they were on their way to the promised land. They just wanted to go through that. 
He asked for permission. He asked peacefully. He asked diplomatically. And what happens, if you read the story, they, they said no. They didn't want that. As a matter of fact, they even went as far as sending an army out to make sure that the Israelites did not pass through their land. So we see that at that moment, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's friction going on between both families now, both, both nations. Fast forward a couple hundred years more to King Saul, the first Israelite king. We read in 1 Samuel that he had to fight against the, the, the Edomites, okay, because they were now considered Israel's enemy. But then we go forward even more in the book of Obadiah. We'll see how God had to deal with Edom, the Edomites, because there were some things that, the, that Edom did to Israel that God did not like. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, Okay. In verse 13 of Obadiah, it says, You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So we got to understand what Edom had done. At this, at this point right here, what Edom had done was... They were, they, were, they were cutting off the people of Israel when the, when the people of Israel were getting chased by the Babylonian armies, right? They ended up intercepting them, catching, capturing them, and sending them back to Babylon as slaves. And God got angry at that. And so God pronounces a judgment. He says in verse 15, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. And then he says in verse 18, Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. And that was fulfilled. That prophecy was fulfilled back in 68 AD when the Roman army destroyed Edom. But I say all this in order to point out how great Esau was. The greatness of Esau lasted for a long time, but it suddenly came to a tragic end. Esau, his sons and his grandsons, they became chiefs. They became kings. They had all this prosperity. They had all this stuff, right? They had a name, but they didn't have a history. They had everything, but they were lacking the most important thing, which was the things of God. In other words, Esau chose second best. Because he chose the earthly greatness over the things of God. He ignored, he neglected, he denied the spiritual over the world, over the flesh. And this right here, the fact that we see that the, that the nation of Edom was destroyed, tells us that that's what happens, you know, with earthly greatness. It's only temporary. Amen? That's the nature of earthly greatness. It's kind of like... Building a sandcastle. How many of you built a sandcastle before? You could build the most elaborate sandcastle, but what's going to happen eventually? Yeah, it's going to fall down. Either the tide's going to come and wash it away, or you're going to see kids that are playing around, they're going to destroy it. And if not that, it'll be destroyed by the natural elements, sun, wind, and rain. But it's eventually going to be destroyed. Why? Because it's temporary. And that's what happens, you know, when we focus on earthly greatness, on material stuff. It's only temporary. It gets destroyed. Amen? This is what we see here 
in the life of Esau. The earthly greatness and prosperity. He, that's what he chose over God's blessings. And all of this right here should lead us to the important question. What are we looking for? What are you looking for in your life? What am I looking for in my life, right? What's our main focus? Okay. Is it material wealth? Earthly greatness? Is it earthly possessions? Maybe a successful career, right? These days, a huge following on social media. Everybody taking selfies, selfies doing the duck face, right? I see a lot of, I see a lot of t- uh, tutorials on whether it be TikTok or Instagram, you know, these makeup stuff. So you want, you're looking for beauty, right? Now, I'm not saying that all this stuff is wrong, okay? I'm not saying that it's wrong because there is a godly way of pursuing this stuff, right? Let's say your career. You can focus on your career to the, in, in, a, in a way that it can be a positive impact to society. You can use your career as a means of loving other people, right? But the stuff that I just mentioned above, let's face it, people are using this stuff to what? Self-advancement, right? It's all about me, right? Instead of, it, instead of, instead of all that, okay, the mentality is everybody wants to look for greatness, some type of greatness for themselves, right? They want to puff themselves up. And this is what we see Esau doing, looking for earthly greatness, to look better, to be better, right? So we see here, this is, this is a hard lesson for us to learn in this chapter because we see a great mighty nation, Edom, Esau, the rise and fall of Esau, right? It reminds us that everything that he went after and all the things that we put our, 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 our uh, attention to, right? All the things that, that we dedicate so much to are temporary when we pursue all this all this stuff, right? Instead of the eternal things of God. Amen? It's like that sandcastle, okay? It's like that sandcastle. Eventually, I mean, it's here one day and it's gone the next. Amen? So instead of pursuing something like that, why not accept the invitation that God offers? The invitation that is eternal. The invitation of, of, of an eternal inheritance, Right? That God offers. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. That's what our hearts should be set on. On the heavenly inheritance, Right? Let's not be so focused in seeking the earthly inheritance. I'm not saying it's wrong, man, to seek a future for your family and stuff like that. Nothing wrong with that. But when that's your sole focus, instead of the eternal blessings from God, then there's a problem, right? Hmm. So, according to 1 Peter, it says, it says that we have an inheritance that never perishes, right? That never spoils. It's an, it's an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. And that's achieved by what? By God's mercy. Amen? It's achieved by God's mercy. Oh, it's quiet in here. 
Okay, let me, let me, let me, let me get some excitement in here. Okay? So let me stand up real quick. The reason why I focus on God's mercy is because it's something that we do not deserve. We do not deserve God's mercy. We are sinful. We are rebellious in our own human nature. And even in that, God still extends his mercy upon us. He didn't have to. He didn't have to send Jesus, but he did so because he loves us. It's that unconditional love that God has for us that he sends his son to die for us, to take our penalty that we so much deserve, right? Because of our sinful condition, we deserve that penalty of death. We deserve that, 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 that punishment. But because of God's mercy, which, which Peter brings out right here, according to his great mercy, we have that internal, that eternal inheritance because of that great mercy. Amen? And Peter says that because of that, he caused us to be what? To be born again. Are we born again, church? Oh, yes. 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 Have you guys ever seen a kid being born? What does it sound like when the kid's born? Right? Right? Let's do a louder. Wah! Right? Making some noise, right? Right? So what am I getting at? If you are born again, make some noise. Come on, somebody. I, I'm a visual learner, okay? I like to do things visually. So if I got to paint the picture, I will. Okay? Next time I'll just put a graphic up there. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we were born into a living hope, right? A living hope because of what? The resurrection of Jesus. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no living hope. Right? But the resurrection, right, it, it implies a crucifixion, which is what we just covered, right? Jesus came. He willfully came, and he died for us. He took our penalty. He took our place, right? We're the ones who deserve death. We're the ones who deserve punishment. But Jesus took it for us. Amen? And then three days later, he resurrected triumphantly. Resurrected. Right? Hallelujah. I think I'm going to blow up up here. I'm getting a visual. I'm getting a visual of just Jesus kicking, kicking that, you know, that, that, that stone out the way. Right? Because death could not stop him. Death cannot stop him. Jesus came for a reason because he knew death cannot stop him. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. So the question is, are we born again? Hallelujah. Woo! We are born again, right? We have that inheritance, right? That hope, right? Praise the Lord. Amen. I like what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26. He says, what good would it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Anybody know how precious our soul is? Our soul is precious. 
so precious that Jesus had to leave heaven. Right? That's what we should be thinking about every day. How precious is our soul? Right? And are we willing to give that up? Jesus says, what good would it be for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? That's step number one, right? It's putting our trust in Jesus. I mean, it looks like everybody did here. Everybody's screaming they're born again. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Putting our trust in Jesus. Okay? That's exactly what Esau didn't do. Okay? Esau didn't think about the, the, eternal, the eternal things. He didn't think about the spiritual things. All he thought about was the material things, things that were right in front of his eyes. He sees a bowl of stew, or as I call it, chile colorado, and he sells his birthright. He sees a couple of fine women, Canaanites, and he goes off and he marries them. He sees a land that supposedly looks better than the promised land that God gave to Abraham and all of his descendants, and he takes off. Who knows? It probably looks like that field across, huh? <laughs> it shows that he was never concerned about anything spiritual, right? All he, all he was looking for was the material things, what's right in front of his eyes. But yet Jesus tells us the opposite. We have to live in such a way that is opposite. He tells us in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin, vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So lay up treasures in heaven. What does that look like? I can give some examples, okay? How about our giving? Giving for the advancement of the gospel, right? How about our material possessions, using it for heavenly purposes, like our homes, opening up our homes for a Bible study, hosting a discipleship group, right? Or what about using our vehicles when someone can't find a ride to church, and they can't afford an Uber, and we give them a ride to church, right? I mean, those are just examples. That's not the only way. But I think that the best way that we can store up treasures in heaven is investing our personal lives into the lives of others, right? Investing in the lives of others. And for parents, children, your children, invest, invest in your children, you are called, I'm called, we parents are called to be the primary disciple makers of our children. It begins in the home. Amen? Then reach out. Reach out to those that are outside, those that are lost. Amen? Spend some time with them. Pray with them. Develop relationships with them. Right? Hallelujah. All this that I just mentioned, it takes time. It takes a lot of work. It takes effort. 
right? Because let's let's be real. When you when you share your when you share your heart, when you share Jesus to somebody else, they're not receptive right away. Some people are, praise the Lord, but some are kind of hard to reach, huh? So it's gonna take some time. It's gonna take some energy, right? It's gonna take some labor. Amen. But we're in it for the long haul, right? We have to be invested. We have to be in it for the long haul. Are we in it for the long haul? Hmm. Praise the Lord. You ever, you ever wonder why when people get saved, God don't take them right away? You ever wonder? I used to think that, Right? I just gave my life to Jesus. Man, my sins are forgiven. I feel fresh, and I'm take me to heaven now, Lord. Right? Why does he leave us here on earth? I like that. Amen. To spread the gospel. He leaves us here on earth because he's something for us to do that we can only do here on earth, and that's spread the gospel. That's spread Jesus. How many are spreading Jesus? Hmm? How many are spreading Jesus? Church, we got to be contagious. We got to be contagious for Jesus. Amen? I mean, we're talking about life and death, right? We're talking about a choice of life and death. And that's the greatest way that we can invest is to invest in the lives of others. Being deliberate in sharing Jesus, being deliberate in, in, in uh, making relationships, amen, forming relationships. That's the best way, I believe anyway. So based on this chapter, if I were to sum it up as to what I think we should do, live our lives with eternity in mind, right? Let's not go pursuing after the materialistic stuff that's only temporary, Amen? Live for what's eternal. Don't settle for second best like Esau did. Right? Settle for the best. Live for what's eternal. So let's not make our lives all about things that really don't matter. Instead, let's order our lives, right, for eternity. Amen? Amen? Amen.